Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Alan Sokol, a professor of mathematics at University College London and professor emeritus of physics at New York University. He is author of the infamous Sokol hoax from 1996 and co-author with Jean Prigmont of Fashionable Nonsense, Postmodern Intellectuals Abuse of Science. His most recent book is Beyond the Hoax, Science, Philosophy, and Culture. I welcome Alan Sokol to Savage Minds. When you did that hoax, my first reaction, Alan, was a bit of like, oh, how dare he? He's, a, he's just a physicist, right? Now, I had my inner woke child. I was also in my 20s, and I was, I'll be honest with you, very unaware as to how deeply rooted the problems were. Hence, here we are today in 2021, and I look at my former self and I'm thinking, what were you thinking? Because I was in, I did comparative literature and anthropology. I was very well schooled in both post-structuralism, post-modernism, and postmodernism in its various formats from literature, which is quite different than architectural postmodernism, which is also right. quite different from the theory. And even if you ask people working in the humanities or social sciences today, the difference is many will not be aware of all of these various camps because they're not uniquely interrelated, actually. This is part of the problem. People will say Kathy Acker is a postmodern, was a postmodern writer, but in fact, what makes a piece of literature postmodern does not necessarily apply to a piece of architecture and certainly does not apply to identity politics. So that was then. And then I wrote you a few years ago saying, mea culpa, I, you know, and I told you the story and by email about how I was at NYU teaching when your hoax came out and my initial reaction and my feeling guilty about it because <laughs> you were right, I was wrong. Now. Well, those things happen. I've been in that situation too. Now here we are where we're living in a world where people are arguing that testosterone has nothing to do with being male, that there's such a thing as a female penis, and that science doesn't really matter. It's how I feel inside my true self. And you are a trained scientist. You were the author of the Sokol Ho Hoax, as it's known now, from 1996. Can you tell our listeners what got you invested in trying out the hoax? Well, yeah. So sometime in the spring of 1994, I saw a notice. The truth is, I can't remember where. And when I try to find it now on the internet, I can't find it. But anyway, I saw a notice somewhere or other about a new book um, called Higher Superstition, the Academic Left and Its Quarrels with Science, uh, written by Paul Gross, a biologist, and Norman Levitt, a mathematician. And so, so, you know, I first thought, oh no, there they go again, another one of these um, right-wing diatribes about how the Marxist feminist subversives are taking over our universities and brainwashing our children. You know, there had been a whole spate of those books in the late 80s and early 90s. 
And then my second thought was academic left and its quarrels with science. I mean, that's a little bit strange. I mean, I'm an academic leftist. I don't have any quarrel with science. And I didn't know that the academic left, or at least some of it, um, did have a quarrel with science. So, so I got the book and read it and learned about a whole quite heterogeneous group of people who were criticizing both the content of natural science, so biology, chemistry, physics, and so on, and the philosophy, the, the prevailing philosophy of science, and were making a, a, a complete botch, as, as I saw it, of both. Um, and so these were people coming from a whole variety of different backgrounds. You had uh, um, uh, postmodernist literary critics, um, you had social constructivists, sociologists, and anthropologists. You had uh, so-called feminist epistemologists. Um, you had uh, advocates of post-colonial theory. Um, and the interesting thing about these critiques, it wasn't like the science for the people critiques of the 1960s, which were criticizing the complicity of the scientific and technological establishment with capitalism, militarism, environmental destruction, and so on. I mean, those are critiques that I think each one has to be examined on its own merits, but in general, I'm sympathetic to those critiques. Um, and nor was it like the feminist movement of the 1970s that criticized discrimination against girls and women in science um, or criticized sexism in some aspects of um, biology, psychology, and, and medicine. I mean, again, um, those are critiques where each one has to be analyzed on its own merits, but in general, I'm sympathetic to those critiques too. But this was different. Um, these people were claiming that the content and methodology of the entirety of modern science, so that means, you know, um, astronomy, physics, and chemistry, no less than biology and psychology and, and medicine, all of this was somehow um, uh, uh, irredeemably infected by uh, patriarchal capitalist um, and colonialist uh, ideology. And so, so, you know, so I read the book, and my first thought was, oh, come on, are these guys really being fair to the, the people they're criticizing? You know, maybe, maybe they were exaggerating. Maybe they were uh, taking a, uh, uh, writings that are, you know, moderately criticizable and making them sound totally ridiculous. Um, or maybe they were criticizing minor figures in these fields while overlooking the solid work done by, by the major figures. Um, so what I did was I ran to the library and looked up um, some, of the, um, some of the articles and books that uh, Gross and Lovett were criticizing. And in the end, I decided that basically they were right. In about 80% of the cases, uh, the uh, things that they were criticizing were as bad as they said. And actually in a few, a few cases, even, even worse than they realized. Um, in the other 20%, my feeling was that they had taken some writing that was mediocre, 
but uh, made it sound worse than it really was. But you know, that, that, those are questions of judgment. But anyway, you know, so I, I had uh, gone to the library to, to verify that Gross and Levitt were basically on the right track, in my opinion. And then, but I had, in doing so, amassed a much bigger dossier of, um, you know, totally flawed and in some cases off the wall claims about, um, well, about two fields that I actually know something about physics and mathematics and the philosophy of physics and mathematics. Um, people uh, making off the wall claims about uh, these, uh, these things um, with no apparent knowledge of what they were really talking about. And some of these were by people who were um, quite famous. Um, so then I thought, what should I do with this? Um, and I, I remember I even had an email at that point with uh, my friend Lee Smolin. And I think I said something like, you know, it would be an interesting uh, exercise in an artificial intelligence class to write, write a computer program to uh, generate a postmodernist essay. Uh, and, but then I thought, no, 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 la natural language is much too difficult. That, that, that would be much too difficult. I actually didn't know that a computer scientist in Australia was almost at the same time writing just such a program, which you can now find on the internet as the postmodernism generator. But anyway, so, so I, uh, you know, after writing this email, I um, uh, um, went to the toilet and that's, you know, where I get most of my um, uh, good ideas. And while sitting on the toilet, I said, well, you know, maybe it would be too difficult to write a computer program to write such a program as I read such an article, but I could write such an article. So I had, so I had the, so the point was, if I were to write an article just criticizing these um, these writings that I had found. Basically, I think it would end up in a, a black hole. No, nobody would read it. I mean, it would be, you know, it would be an addition to the critique of Gross and Levitt, but um, it, it wouldn't really have much effect. So I had the idea instead of doing something that would be, um, well, a parody, a hoax, and in a certain sense, an experiment, although it's admittedly an uncontrolled experiment. So my idea was to, instead of writing an article criticizing these people, to write an article praising these people. So to invent a, um, a storyline, an argument um, woven around the worst quotations that I could find from the most pro about mathematics and physics from the most prominent um, intellectuals, which in this case were about half French and a half Anglo-American. And, um, and so basically build a nonsensical argument around these quotations and to, and to try to do it in the style that would be, uh, that, that's fashionable in these uh, fields that Gross and Levitt were critiquing, and then try submitting it to a um, fashionable journal in one of those fields to see if they would accept it as a serious article. 
So that was, I guess that was in the summer of 1994. And it took me about three months to write the article. I had to, you know, revise and revise until it reached the desired level of unclarity. Um, and, but I, but I have to admit it was fun. It was fun because I could just put in the craziest, um, not exactly stream of consciousness, but the craziest, you know, sentences with buzzwords that don't actually mean anything. Um, and, um, uh, or in some cases, some of the things admittedly were in jokes for mathematicians and, and physicists making a play on words, for example, between the axiom of choice in uh, mathematics, which is a very, very technical proposition from set theory and relating it to, uh, to uh, pro-choice pro positions on abortion. And um, so anyway, so, so I had a lot of fun writing this article. And so it took about three months to write it, I think, as I recall. Um, and I so I decided to submit it to uh, Social Text. Um, Social Text uh, uh, was, or I guess is, a fairly fashionable journal in the field called Cultural Studies, which I guess you know more about than I do, but my, my feeling is that it's um, people practicing sociology without a license, which is perfectly fine. I'm perfectly, you know, I, I don't really, I'm joking. I don't think that anybody should have, have to have a license to write about something. After all, I've written a lot about philosophy of science and I have no, no degree in philosophy at all. So that's not the problem. But basically cultural studies is, my impression is that it's people from a literary background trying to write about sociology and politics and so on. And that's fine, you know, what they write should be evaluated on its merits. So anyway, so this was a, a fashionable field um, in at least in the American and uh, British academies in the, in the 1990s. And, uh, and Social Text was one of the fashionable journals in the field. And two of the editors of Social Text uh, namely Andrew Ross and Stanley Aronowitz were among the people prominently cited in, um, in my parody article. Um, of course, you know, once I realized that I was submitting it to social text, I of course played the game of stuffing in as many favorable citations to the editors of the, of the journal as I could. You know, flattery is um, a good way of getting your article accepted. Um, but anyway, so I decided to submitted to, to social text and, uh, and then I had to wait and see. And, and so what happened was unbeknownst to me, they were organizing a special issue of their journal. The issue was going to be entitled Science Wars precisely in order to attack Gross and Levitt. And, and so, what must have happened, of course, I'm not privy to the discussions of their edit editors, but what must have happened is that they thought, oh my God, a real scientist on our side in the science wars. Um, and so that was a positive thing for them, despite whatever deficiencies they found in, in my article. They never made very clear 
what it was. It, and in fact, I was hoping, you know, to get detailed referee reports, detailed criticisms from them, and and I didn't. Um, I mean, they they wanted me to shorten the article. It had too many footnotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <laughs> and too many did. footnotes. It's footnotes. like Amadeus. <laughs> too many notes. <laughs> but, I mean, that's my yeah. That's I mean, that's my style in in my real writing as well as my uh, parody. Uh, article. I mean, I use a lot of footnotes. I like using a lot of footnotes. And in this particular case, I couldn't remove the footnotes because some of the best jokes were in the footnotes. So I, you know, so I made some excuses about how I had to include the footnotes because my scientist colleagues are going to read this and I have to defend myself. I, I gave some good excuses and they agreed. So basically, um, the article was was accepted um, more or less uh, as is. That must have happened by about April, 1995. And then, then you know, here's the complicated thing. So they accepted the article for this special issue, but I had no idea when this special issue was going to appear. This was April, 1995. It turned out that it appeared in April, 1996, a year later, but I didn't know that. I had no idea. And as this thing was progressing, um, the number of people who were in on the hoax um, was increasing. I mean, basically, you know, even before I submitted it, I tried it out on various friends, both scientists and non-scientists to see whether you know, some of whether it would pass, whether some of the things were too obvious or, and so I got various suggestions from various friends before I submitted it. And then, you know, and then gradually this, um, this circle increased, you know, somebody would say to me, um, I've got a friend who is a uh, professor of uh, cultural studies at UC Santa Cruz, and she's written, um, lots of articles against postmodernism and she's you know she's uh, not listened to by her colleagues and i think she would love your um, your article can i can i share it with her and i would say yes but you have to share you have to swear her to secrecy and so gradually you know gradually the friends of friends of friends all sworn to secrecy are becoming aware of this and, but of course, I had no idea when this, when it was supposed to go to publication. And I had no idea when um, some of the secrecy would accidentally fall apart, right? I mean, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like COVID. You have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people infected. And even if they try to quarantine, some of them will, will transmit it. And um, so I was deathly afraid that my little experiment would get undone before it was published by the news leaking out. Let me read the title here for our listeners, because I'm sorry. It's so funny. Transgressing the boundaries, colon, because as you, I'm sure, noticed, all the humanities have colons and subtitles that are extremely long towards a transformative hermeneutics of quantum gravity. 
I actually, yes, I did notice the thing about the colon. In fact, I have to, uh, if you give me a second, I'll try to pick it up um, on my computer. When, so in uh, about 10 years later in 2008, I published a book uh, with Oxford University Press called Beyond the Hoax. Uh, with that, and the first, the first, um, the first chapter of the book was a reprint of the parody article together with on facing pages uh, annotations on the parody. And actually one of the annotations um, says exactly as you notice, I'm reading it to you now, it says, current practice in the academic humanities dictates that titles must begin with a gerund, consist of two phrases separated by a colon, and contain at least one play on words. Furthermore, the title should preferably give as little information as possible concerning the content of the article. It is very funny to read. There's this part, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's so funny uh, because at the time when your piece came out, I hadn't actually read it. I heard about it first before I read it. And reading it is hysterical, especially when the hoax was revealed because there's this will to follow a text all the way through, like watching a bad movie, right? So you, you refer to Bohr and then you say this foreshadowing of postmodernist epistemology is by no means coincidental. The profound connections between complementarity and deconstruction have recently been elucidated by Frula and Honer and in great depth by Plotnitsky. What was your thesis here? <laughs> right, so, so the point is, of, of course, I can't remember even the articles of Frula, Hahner, and Plotnitsky, but the point was all of those references are trying to stuff into the bibliography the worst um, commentary that I could find about, in this case, quantum mechanics from people in, you know, literature, cultural studies, coming from a postmodernist angle. Um, so but more, with a few exceptions, everything praised in the article is an example of um, one of the writings that I'm trying to criticize. Um, and, but most of them are from fairly unknown people. So I didn't make a big deal about it. That's why they're hidden in, mostly hidden in the footnotes. Um, but, and then, but then the biggies, um, if I'm, I'm trying to remember my way through the article, I mean, the article was organized as a tour through the biggies. Uh, so, right. so, so first, first, I so, first I soften the readers up, but soften the reader up by uh, citing Bohr and Heisenberg about quantum mechanics. And so here I have to say, I'm extremely critical of the things that Bohr and Heisenberg wrote um, in their popular writings about quantum mechanics. Some of the popular misunderstandings about quantum mechanics can be laid at the foot in part of those first physicists who wrote, um, I don't know, I, they exaggerated various things about quantum mechanics and paraphrased things in ways that 
led to many, many misunderstandings. So they wrote some things that did indeed sound in some sense uh, postmodernist. Um, and so I quoted some of these things to soften the reader up. And then the rest of the article is a tour through the biggies. So let's see, I mean, in which order do I, do I hit the, the biggies? Um, I'm just looking through this. So there's first. Well, it's interesting too, because a lot of these people who you mention are New York based. So I, I can only imagine how it was when you would bump into them. Andrew was at NYU. I think he was the head of American studies at the time. Yes, I had to be super, super careful there. You know, he invited me to lunch and I had to make all sorts of excuses because it's one thing to write an article um, pretending to believe in something that you absolutely don't believe in. It's another thing to dissemble in person. I'm not a good actor. So <laughs> I had to make all sorts of excuses for why I couldn't have lunch with him. Indeed, his office was, you know, one block away from mine. Um, and, you know, so that, and I have to say, by the way, um, you know, uh, obviously he, he was upset after this thing came out. It was very embarrassing for him, but it, uh, I think after a while, it was not personal. Um, five, or, five or 10 years later, I forget which, we were on the same side of an issue at NYU, we were both supporting the graduate students attempt to organize a union, which the NYU administration was opposing. And so, you know, in faculty meetings, you know, he would say something and then I, uh, 10 minutes later would get up and say, as Professor Ross eloquently said, blah, blah, blah. So this right. was of course probably very amusing to the other faculty members who heard it, but it was true, you know. But it's interesting because this is all a lesson for leftists. I mean, like yourself, I am a leftist and I find myself homeless politically in recent years over what your paper made fun, your hoax made fun of has become ironically more emboldened and we're living in an era now yes, where absolutely. My, many and, people and on the I'd left, like to, I'm sure maybe we could come back to that are buttressing narratives of um, internal kind of identities in, over in material reality. A little bit in chronological order, but I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the postmodernist ideas have come back more and more front and center, albeit in an evolved uh, way. So going back to my parody, so I organized it around, so the biggies were actually French. So the biggies were Jacques Derrida, Jean-François Lyotard. Jacques, uh, uh, Jacques Le uh, Lyotard played a minor role actually, but Derrida, um, Lacan, and Lucie Regaray, who is I guess actually Belgian, um, and uh, I think he, I think the three major sections of the article were organized around them, if I remember correctly, and then a whole lot of um, lesser-known academics from the English-speaking world. Um, see, they, and there there was a sociological difference um, in the people I was citing and parodying in the different countries. In, in the, the Americans and, and Brits and Australians that I was citing were for the most part 
uh, tenured professors in good universities, um, but not well known outside of their fields and vir virtually unknown to the general public because, you know, in at least in the United States, hardly any intellectual is well known to the general public. Um, on the other hand, in France, the, the people I was criticizing were um, stars. They were intellectual stars. You'd, you'd see them um, constantly in Le Monde, in Liberation, and even from time to time on television. Um, and so it's just a difference. The, the, uh, in the American system, you know, the United States is a largely anti-intellectual country. By contrast, France has an intellectual star system. And I mean, of course, I'm critical of both things. But um, and that, so that was an interesting sociological difference between um, the two sides of the, the people I was criticizing and parodying. But anyway, so yeah, so, so uh, the article was accepted. Should I tell the story of how, how the uh, hoax was almost revealed? Sure. Th this is... This is an amusing story, which unfortunately hasn't been told very much. Um, so about, as it turns out, only a few weeks before the article was published, but of course I didn't know that because I didn't know when the article was going to be published. I got a call from a 27 year old um, freelance journalist saying that I'd like to talk with you about your upcoming article in social text. And I wasn't surprised about that because they, uh, Social Text, um, had actually advertised in various publications this forthcoming issue on Science Wars together with the names of the authors. So, so when the journalist asked me this, I played dumb and I just said, oh, I see you're, you're interviewing all the, all the authors for this upcoming special issue. And he said, well, yes, but I think your case will be more delicate. Mm. <laughs> what's up here? So, so I played dumb, but I agreed to meet him at the New York Public Library a few days later. And so basically I had resolved to play dumb for five minutes. And um, if he said, I think that your article is a hoax, I'd say, um, yes, you're right, congratulations. Let's go talk to your editors. Oh, because here's the, here's the funny thing. The, the, the journal that he was working for as a freelance journalist was um, Lingua Franca, which unfortunately is no longer in existence, but, it, but was a wonderful, uh, um, how do I describe it? Sometimes some people call it the people magazine of academia, but of course it was much more much more serious and sophisticated than that. It gave, it had interesting articles about controversies or scandals um, in academia. And, you know, it was especially useful because you, you could find out about fields other than your own. Um, so it was, a, it was a, a really interesting journal. And I was planning, I, of course, um, I, I should say, I, I was planning eventually to reveal my own hoax. I wanted it to be published. I was gonna wait six months or a year to see what the re reaction would be. That would be part of the experiment. See, would people praise it? Would people criticize it? Would people ignore it? I figured most likely people would ignore it, um, but I wanted to see. Um, and then 
six months or a year later, I would submit a, uh, an article outing myself. Um, and I had, the journal I had chosen for that was Lingua Franca. And I had already written in advance the article outing myself. So um, when I went to see this uh, freelance journalist, David Glenn, at the New York Public Library, I was carrying a copy of this article outing myself. And so when he said, you know, I think that your article is a hoax, I said, congratulations. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, let's go talk to your editors. Because it turned out the Lingua Franca's offices were only a few blocks away. So we walked over. His editors were expecting to see him. They weren't expecting to also see me. Um, but it was a it was a funny thing. So I, I should tell a little bit about how he put it together because he did incredible detective work based on rather minimal clues, and unfortunately, he never got proper credit for it. Um, so he so he he told me this story. He said, you know, one night he he I guess was a he was either a graduate student in sociology at. City University of New York, or was at least in those social circles. And uh, he was at a party where, you know, people were drinking and people were making jokes about uh, uh, or telling stories about Stanley Aronowitz, one of the one of the sociology professors at at uh, CUNY Grad Center and also uh, one of the people, one of the editors of Social Text, in which I later found out I had cited him approvingly 13 times <laughs> in the article. I didn't realize it was so much. And so people were telling, telling, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what you call it, uh, gossip about him. And one person apparently says, um, I hear that Social Text will soon have egg on its face. You know, so I have no idea if this is this, you know, this must be of a friend of a friend of a friend who found out about my hoax and accidentally spilled the beans here. So, um, but with no more details than that, I hear that social text will soon have egg on its face. So David Glenn, you know, goes to sleep and the next morning, once he's gotten over his hangover, wakes up and, um, remembers that he's a freelance journalist. And this sounds interesting. Social text will soon have egg on his face. So he calls the person up and says, could you tell me more? And the person says, I think I've already told you too much, which makes him even more intrigued, of course. So he goes to his editors at Lingua Franca and they, plan, they make a plan. So the first thing they do is they look at the most recent issue of social text to see if there's anything embarrassing in that and they don't find anything. So then they figure it must be the upcoming issue. And they know that Duke University Press, which is the publisher of Social Text, has a policy of making um, advanced galley proofs of their journals available to journalists, you know, who might want to publicize them. So Lingua Franca puts in a request for the upcoming issue of Social Text and for three other Duke University Press journals, just to, just to, you know, to cover their tracks, to mislead Duke University Press about what's going on. And then when they get the, the, uh, the galley proofs of this upcoming issue, they go through the 16 articles 
and they find the 15 of them are a little weird and the 16th is a little weirder. And so at that point, they suspect that my article is a hoax. And so, so, so David Glenn put this all together by amazing detective work um, based on a really, really tiny clue. And, but unfortunately he never got proper credit. Um, the reason is when we were talking with his editors, um, they had a deadline coming up soon. And they said, you know, if they were to publish um, David Glenn writing a news article about this, it would be only fair, they would have to contact the social text editors for, for their point of view, for comment. But they had no idea when social text was coming out. So if they had a deadline, they, had, they would have had to contact them immediately. But if social text had not yet gone to press, social, they could undo their whole story, right? Social text could pull my article from, from their uh, journal. I mean, as it turns out, social text had gone to press then and was going to come out more or less simultaneously with Linga Franca, but they didn't know that. So the editor made the decision that instead of running a news article by David Glenn, they would run my article outing myself and then give the social text editors an opportunity to respond in the next issue a month, a month later, which is what they did. Um, but that meant, I mean, that was fine for me and for the social text editors, but it meant that David Glenn never got proper credit for the amazing detective work that he did. Um, so I feel bad about that. In your explanation of the experiment, you said to test the prevailing intellectual standards, I decided to try a modest, though admittedly uncontrolled experiment with a leading North American journal of cultural studies whose editorial collective includes such luminaries as Frederick Jameson and Andrew Ross, publish an article liberally salted with nonsense if A, it sounded good, and B, it flattered the editor's ideological preconceptions. Right. And, and then I, I didn't actually add, but I should have added, and C, flattered the editors personally. <laughs> that was, <laughs> that was a, a small ingredient too. But, but, but I think flattering their ideological conceptions was the important thing. You know, th this is the unfortunate thing. Um, Andrew Ross had coined this term science wars for the debate between, well, various people on one side and Gross and Levitt on the other by analogy with the so-called culture wars that had been happening in the United States for the past five or 10 years, uh, so late, late 80s and early 90s, where a bunch of uh, right-wing uh, cultural commentators were writing books against uh, uh, feminism, deconstructionism, uh, um, leftist approaches to history, various things which they claimed were were taking over the universities. And so Andrew Ross and his colleagues framed the, the so-called, uh, what they called science wars by analogy with that and painted um, Gross and Levitt as right-wingers, which is not true. I mean, uh, Gross, I don't know, uh, know him very well, but I gather that he's a fairly typical liberal, liberal in, in the American sense. Uh, and Levitt, I got to know quite a bit better. Um, he 
what I have to say was, unfortunately, he died um, rather young in 2009. Um, but he he was a member of Dem Democratic Socialists of America. I mean, he he described himself as uh, a socialist in economics, a liberal in politics, and a conservative in culture. Um, so, you know, you can have your opinion on that, but he was definitely not a right winger. Um, but but uh, the 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 crowd that was attacked by Gross and Levin wanted to frame it that, that this was a right wing attack. Well, they wanted to frame it two ways. There was a right wing attack and that it was attacked an attack by scientists trying to preserve their own turf. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and some of the people even afterwards said you had in the years in the several years afterward, when this debate was raging, you had sociologists writing, you know, that, that scientists were, were, were uh, using um, these uh, social and cultural critics as scapegoats for the declining public support for science and the declining uh, public funding of science. And the, the truth is, I think that has nothing to do with it. I mean, that the funding of science is a totally different problem, but I certainly don't don't blame the postmodernists and the deconstructionists for why um, uh, um, right wing people in the government were were cutting funding for science. I mean, it has nothing. One has nothing to do with the other. Um, but uh, and, and that's anyway how they framed the debate as right wing scientists versus left wing literary and cultural and social uh social science people which is which is a little bit strange because it's an inversion of the two cultures debate um from the 1950s when cp snow painted the humanities as right wing and the science science as left wing well that's exactly what's happened today just with helen joyce's recent book released this week there have been accusations because of her pointing out within the text certain links between the funding of the transgender movement and the backers who happen to be, by the way, she doesn't mention this, happen to be Jewish. She's been accused of being right-wing and anti-Semitic. And all the feminists for the last 10 years I've been following this subject have been accused of being right-wing, even though you have groups right there in London, like Women's Place UK, Fair Play for Women in the UK, et cetera. And there are many groups that are to the left. So the whitewashing is still happening where any dissenting voice to the current narrative of even liberal orthodoxy is automatically painted as being right wing. Obviously left and right are overly simplistic words. There are a bunch of different lefts and a bunch of different rights. And, and um, they're, 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 it's not just one thing. I mean, this was true already, you know, in the 1990s when I was writing. Uh, so in addition to getting um, tagged as a right winger, I was also being tagged as a Marxist. You know, so that that I'm a Marxist who cares only about economics and is unable to see any other kind of oppression, 
race or gender or, or whatever, which is of course also ridiculous, right? I mean, first of all, I'm not a Marxist. Um, um, I mean, I do think it is important to look at economic class, but I also think it's important to look at race and gender and all, and, and, and all these other things. So, um, so already, you know, even in the 1990s, you had to some extent a, a division between leftists who tended to focus on economics and leftists who tended to focus on um, other types of identity issues. And um, I mean, I personally, uh, you know, fall in the middle there. Um, but uh, so, so anyway, be that as it may, so that was, that, that was what, what happened with, with the, um, the hoax being published and then um, uh, when it was published, I should say, by the way, what did I expect was going to happen? Uh, well, two things. I didn't know if it was going to be published. When I submitted it, I didn't know if it was going to be accepted for publication. Um, and I can, I can prove that I gave it 50-50 uh, odds of being accepted for publication because I offered two friends who were in on the hoax a bet allowing them to bet in either direction they preferred at one-to-one -one odds of uh, whether it would be published. And uh, the, the, the winner would, get, would have to uh, pay for dinner at a nice restaurant in New York for the loser. And both of the friends bet that it would be published. So I lost both bets and had to pay up with the dinner. Um, so, so, you know, so I gave it a 50-50 chance of being published, but then what would it happen? What would happen if it was published? Well, I figured it would be a minor scandal in a small academic community that it would be page 10 of the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, I had no idea, absolutely no idea that it would be front page of the New York Times. I mean, granted, you know, granted on a slow news day, but still. I had no idea that it would be front page of the New York Times. And then six months later, after the, the word gradually percolated to France that some of the people most satirized in it were um, great French intellectuals, then it was front page of Le Monde. Um, and I, I had no idea that that was going to happen. I mean, my wife can tell this story. When it came out, I was, at a physics conference at the University of Minnesota. And she started in, back in New York, she started getting all these phone calls from journalists. You know, with, with, so then she referred them, I don't know, I guess the secretaries at the University of Minnesota were having to field all these phone calls for me. Um, and, um, and, you know, and the, uh, some of them were from from uh, network television. I I turned down all of the television interview requests because I didn't think that television um, would would be serious. You know, they would feed into um, the general anti-intellectual culture. Let's make fun of the pointy-headed professors kind of thing, which was not my intention at all. So I turned down television, but I did do uh, an, uh, an interview with National Public Radio. And so in fact, it was must have been, now that I think about it, it was NPR that I did first. And then the next morning, the, the New York Times uh, um, uh, did it. 
Um, and then, yeah, and then all hell broke loose. Uh, and um, so I had no, not the slightest idea that it would um, hit such a chord, not just in academia, but in at least, you know, some part of the general public. Um, I mean, in retrospect, I guess I, I underestimated the interest that, um, you know, people, ordinary citizens have in science, politics, I mean, all the different issues that, that were, were touched on by, by the hoax. And, and also, you know, I, mean, I think I even looked up the statistics that um, at the time, I think something like 50% uh, of Americans, of adult Americans had attended some college and 25% actually had uh, university degrees. And so, you know, so that means there's a significant cohort of people who may have taken a cultural studies or women's studies course that was a little too heavy on Derrida and Lacan and all these people. And um, they may have thought, oh my God, I'm really stupid. I can't understand a word of this. And then they were maybe thrift, thrilled to find out that the fact that they couldn't understand it was maybe not their fault. Well, of course, at the heart of this too, Alan, is the fact that they did accept a paper that was designed to use their own hokum against them. And I was in the humanities then, and, and what I saw was a lot of digging down rather than understanding that perhaps we ought to use language more responsibly and not put how to deconstruct identity everywhere in every paper and every class seminar. Right. So digging down, you mean? Um... Yeah, they, they, they dug their heels in yeah. and decided we're going forward. Yeah, I think, well, you, you, you have more direct knowledge of it than me, obviously. Um, probably it varied a lot from place to place, but yeah, I think that was certainly one of, one of the reactions, you know, what, what does this physicist know about our field anyway? You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Around 96, 7, 8, there started to be these master's programs designed for the, the knowledge curation of. So you would have museum studies, curatorial studies, and those started to blossom and they would merge with, as you know, NYU, there was a lot of merging of programs and degrees with the Stern School of Business. So you'd see joint degrees being offered because there was this idea of, well, you can have your humanities and eat your cake too, as it were. So match a humanities degree up with a business degree. The problem is that what you were critiquing, and when I say departments dug down, I'm not even saying that's necessarily a bad reaction to what you did, because the first reaction to any kind of shock to the system, logically, I think, would be a digging down, because that's what people do. That's what we're seeing today around identity politics. People are digging down 
the protests in Los Angeles these past two Saturdays over women saying we don't want men in our in our sauna when I have my six-year-old child naked people are actually saying again they're digging down saying no but if he identifies as having a female penis what's wrong with that so we have this mismatch between what people actually think what they really think behind closed doors and what they say on the streets or for a CNN camera or for their friends in their woke circles. And so I think the reaction to your hoax, of course, was to dig down because departments didn't have a lot of choice. Remember, you, you pointed out the, the culture wars that sort of got going with the likes of Jesse Helms critiquing Robert Mapplethorpe's photos and Cindy Sherman, et cetera. And of course, that also that group of the right wing the moral majority they dug down too when they were being critiqued they would not let up and they sought to disembowel arts funding in the states and they were quite successful at it if you recall one thing i wanted to say about the 90s um not everybody dug their heels in and kept doing the same thing so for example i think some of the people who were embarrassed, like, for example, Andrew Ross, who had written some fairly silly things about science. Um, he went on to do other things. And in fact, quite good things. He wrote a book about sweatshops. He helped to uh, uncover when NYU was building a campus at Abu Dhabi. He helped to uncover the exploitation of foreign workers. Uh, that was uh, happening in uh, uh, in the construction of that of that campus. So, in, in fact, he he got himself, uh, I think, deported from from Abu Dhabi. Uh, and um, you know, so so some of the people went on to do different and, uh, from my point of view, uh, uh, more justifiable things. What you were confronting with your hoax pushed on the boundaries, but those boundaries didn't really begin to crumble until the last 10 years with feminists, especially in the UK, where you are now pushing on these boundaries when it came to discussing women's rights, women's spaces, women's own definition of themselves, because you're in the thick of it. I lived in London and got involved with this movement over the last 10 years because it came to my doorstep, as it were, by feminists in central London saying, are you aware that the transgender movement has, and they started to describe to me, and I thought, hmm, I was very involved in gay rights in, in New York. And I said to this person, that sounds a bit far-fetched. I don't think so. And I was in denial because I just thought this person revealing some of the incidents that she was telling me about was inventing or exaggerating. And I went back to my computer, started to research and found out that every bit that she had told me was completely accurate. And I'm speaking about council persons elected in various parts of the UK who were redefining what women meant, redefining the way that women could talk about themselves and redefining what would be considered a legal restriction on women's rights to say no to men. And this has come about, as I'm sure you've seen in recent months, with many scholars and writers and artists. I've been detailing this for 10 years now. I've been speaking to people like Rachel Rooney, a children's book author, 
who has been hounded so badly that now she and many others are finding themselves with no career because editors avoid making contracts with people who are designated TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. And this is actually a far more volatile proposition for our society where Jesse Helms was arguing about the decency of Robert Mapplethorpe's white and black buttocks juxtaposed within the frame. We are back to science being completely undermined by hokum, where now we're being told that sex is not real, that humans are not sexually dimorphic, and that men can become women. It's not, I mean, it's not, it's not even, you know, a great discovery of modern science. It's some, something that humans have known since the beginning of being humans, that obviously the um, divided into male and female with, you know, I gather there's, I don't know, 0.1% of exceptions, but uh, just, just about everybody else is male or female. Yes, intersex conditions are extremely rare, but those individuals within the intersex community have also pushed back on the trans community because they say, stop hijacking our existence right. to suit your purposes. And right. as you know, you have colleagues there at UCL, such as Alice Sullivan and Judith Suisa, who have been working on this subject. I, I've interviewed Alice here. Oh, uh, there are many other women who've been active in this, and there have been labor activists. You've had women's organizations popping up everywhere. You have individual women going out and doing their own thing. You have mothers with no time to do very much, but in their spare time, they are writing the BBC saying, why did you put a show up with absolutely no women on the panel? This happens all the time. So you have taken issue with science, not just from the hoax, but since the hoax. You spoke about this in a lecture that you gave, what is science and why should we care? You asked what, in fact, the four distinct meanings of science mean for us today, in a sense. You say that science denotes an intellectual endeavor aimed at a rational understanding of the natural and social world, that it denotes a corpus of currently accepted substantive knowledge, that it denotes a community of scientists with its mores and its social and economic structure. And finally, you say it denotes applied science and technology. I wanted to make those distinctions because a lot of people, when they talk about science, blur together those four things. And the analysis of those four things is radically, has to be radically different. And sometimes, sometimes people make valid criticisms of technology and then assume that it therefore is valid as, as a critique of science as a way of understanding the world. And, the, and of course it's not valid, it's just a misuse of words that allows people to think that it's valid. So I wanted to start by making those distinctions and then saying what I was going to concentrate on in the talk, I say, I'll be concentrating on the first two aspects that namely an intellectual endeavor aimed at a rational understanding of the natural and social world and a corpus of currently accepted su substantive knowledge. And then I would make some secondary references to the sociology of the scientific community, but I wouldn't address technology at all. You get at in this talk, the whole notion of substantive knowledge. What does that mean when you add a corollary 
to those four points where you say, you talk about fallibilism as the, I'm quoting you, the understanding that all our empirical knowledge is tentative, incomplete, and open to revision in the light of new evidence or cogent new arguments. And then you go on to cite Bruno Latour, who did somewhat of a U-turn to his previous work, which I found quite beautiful, what you quoted of his. He wrote, while we spent years trying to detect the real prejudices hidden behind the appearance of objective statements, do we now have to reveal the real objective and incontrovertible facts hidden behind the illusion of prejudices? And yet, our entire PhD programs are still running to make sure that good American kids are learning the hard way that facts are made up, that there is no such thing as natural, unmediated, unbiased access to truth, that we are always prisoners of language, that we always speak from a particular standpoint, and so on, while dangerous extremists are using the very same argument of social construction to destroy hard-won evidence that could save our lives. Yeah, I guess, he, I guess at that point he was talking about, uh, in particular, about uh, climate science. Um, that was, no, when was that? That was 2004. So that was, that was 17 years ago. His article, so I quoted the clearest part of the article. The, the rest of the article it was less clear exactly what he was saying. I mean, it was a mea culpa on his part, but kind of a half of a mea culpa. It was, it was not clear um, exactly which ideas he was renouncing, but he was making clear that, um, uh, that uh, these um, social constructivist ideas are dangerous because that they can they can be used um, from both sides, and maybe that brings us to to the present um, and to a, a short article that I that I wrote for Arc Digital um, just after the storming of the Capitol, um, and uh, what I wanted to explain was um, that um, that uh, precise that, that postmodernism's denial of objective reality and stress on this idea of social construction can be used from both sides. And in the end, what, what goes around comes around. Um, and so, you know, so I started saying, imagine that the election had really been stolen and I, you know, give a scenario where there are four hour lines and broken, broken voting machines in black neighborhoods of Milwaukee and Atlanta and thousands of absentee ballots thrown out and blah, blah, blah where um, the Supreme Court uh, with its conservative majority manages to uh, steal the election for Trump. And then I say, now imagine that a, some small minority of activists had decided to go farther and occupy the Supreme Court building or the Capitol. Um, wouldn't many of us understand and sympathize with their actions, even if we didn't fully approve? And so, the, and then I cite polls showing of showing how many um, Republican supporters um, supported or at least understood um, the the storming of the Capitol, viewed it as mostly a legitimate protest, and how many Republican supporters thought that that so apparently, uh, at least as of uh, January, 66 to 72 percent of Republican voters sincerely believed that the 2020 election results were inaccurate or even fraudulent. Uh, and then I said, well, is it any surprise 
that 47% of them think that the assault on the Capitol was mostly legitimate and that 17% of them outright support it, wouldn't we feel exactly the same way were we in their place? But then I go on to say, but we're not in their place and there is actually a no, no symmetry between the two situations because in my hypothetical scenario, the election really was stolen. Whereas in the 2020 election, the Trump team had lots of opportunities to challenge the results in the courts and they did so. They filed dozens of lawsuits and they were rejected in scathing decisions by judge after judge, including Trump's own appointees because the evidence of fraud that they offered was just so ridiculous. So then, you know, so then I say, look, the fundamental problem is not just the breakdown of democratic legitimacy, it's the breakdown of consensus on basic facts. But here, right, I mean, 66% of Republicans think that the election was stolen. Um, and, 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 you know, so then I say the source of that delusion is obvious. Trump himself abetted by more than half of the Republican members of Congress and amplified in the echo chambers of social media. But then here's the point. Then I try to uh, link it to more philosophical things. I say maybe the key problem lies even deeper. It's not just the, the breakdown of consensus on basic facts, but the breakdown of consensus on how to determine basic facts, or maybe whether there even is such a thing as objective fact um, beyond mere opinion. And then I say, but alas, here, the right wing wasn't the first to cast stones. And then, and then I go through the, the history of how social constructivist sociologists of science starting around 40 years ago started to break the consensus about you know, evidence in the real world and, and how these ideas were picked up by um, postmodernist scholars uh, in departments of literature mostly. And then they percolated into the rest of society where, where I say they became part of the mother's milk of some sectors of the woke left. And so I quote Robin DiAngelo, the author of, of White Fragility saying, there is no objective reality, no objective neutral reality. So that's a sentence that she throws out with no justification and no follow-up, um, you know, almost as if it were an obvious platitude. Um, in the middle of what the rest of the article I find is actually a rather thoughtful um, uh, reflection on the intersection between race and class. She explains how she grew up, she's white, and she grew up very poor and how, you know, how race and class intersected. I thought that was very interesting. And in the middle of this, she just throws out as if it were something that everybody knows, there is no objective neutral reality. And then I say, well, you know, what goes around comes around. Now everyone, Trumpists included, can have their own alternative facts as, uh, who was it? Trump's uh, press secretary, I think, coined that phrase. Um, and, then, and then of course I defend myself against misinterpretations. I say, look, you know, I'm not claiming that postmodernist academics are responsible for the right of, rise of the alt-right. I mean, that would be absurd. I mean, postmodernism didn't play any part in creating climate change denial, coronavirus conspiracy theories, birtherism or QAnon. Um, but what basically um, my point is that um, what postmodernist relativism is wrought is something more insidious 
not so much that it created um, all these objective untruths that the right wing is spreading, but by devaluing the concept of objective truth, it's under, it has undermined our own ability to combat those objective untruths. Um, as one, one writer eloquently put it, that we need to develop herd immunity to a pandemic of viral disinformation. I mean, I think that's, that's, a, nice, that's, a, nice, that's a nice metaphor in, in a time of a coronavirus pandemic because disinformation, I mean, this word, you know, going viral on, on the internet, that, it's not a bad analogy, because um, what does a virus do? A virus hijacks your own body to reproduce its RNA or DNA. Um, and uh, it can't reproduce on itself. And it spreads. Um, so in the case of disinformation, I mean, is a virus isn't good or bad, right? In biological evolution, organisms are not good or bad. The organisms that we can reproduce more increase their numbers. It's just, it's just, it's, it's mathematics. It's not ethics. Um, and it's not, not exactly the same, but it's somewhat analogous with information on the internet. Information on the internet increases to the extent that it's good at getting itself spread. Right, but it's being spread is not analogous to its veracity, is it? Exactly. In fact, it may be inversely correlated with its veracity. We don't know. Um, and, and so, and herd, what does herd immunity mean? Herd immunity means, so in the case of the coronavirus pandemic, if we were to, to reach it, what it means is there are enough people who are immune either by previous infection or by vaccination that they don't spread it. When they, when they, when they, they either don't, when they get it, uh, exposed, they either don't get infected or, or at least don't spread it. And it's the same thing, the herd immunity in, on social media, I guess would mean that there are a larger number of people who decide not to retweet the disinformation. Um, and if the, if the R factor, right? The, I mean, it's the same, just as in the coronavirus, the, the R factor, the number of people that one infected person infects. If R is bigger than one, the epidemic explodes exponentially and very fast. If R is less than one, it declines. Except when you're talking about free speech and thoughts, let's say over the coronavirus, I'm sure you're aware there's been a demonetizing of Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang's channel by YouTube because of questioning various issues around the mitigation of the pandemic, Invermectin, and other issues related to the virus. And one must wonder if putting the lid on free speech might in fact make the R factor go up because as you know, there are many people on social media who are reactive. If they are told not to do something, they will want to do it a hundred times more. I even have a bit of that in me. I don't want to be told I have to use certain pronouns for someone because my eyeballs work quite well. Thank you very much. You see what I mean? No, I absolutely don't claim to have solutions. I'm not saying how 
one should try to um, reduce the retweeting of uh, misinformation. And uh, I don't know uh, what's the, the right approach, whether you do it by teaching people to be uh, more thoughtful or, uh, you know, I, I really don't, don't have a solution. I, I was just basically stating the, the mathematical fact that, right. uh, you know, that the, the, the retweets um, behave somewhat similarly to the way of irises with the difference, however, with the difference that the, um, uh, uh, what's it called in, in uh, epidemiology, the um, in, infectious interval, so the interval between one infection and the next, in the case of coronavirus is about five days. Um, the, the, the time between a tweet and a retweet could be a few minutes so that you can have an exponential explosion, not in, not over weeks, but over hours. But then one could make the argument that Twitter and social media and even journalism is that space to make arguments and discussions happen in the same sense that scientists use scientific method to test if something will in fact be true or false, depending on what is being tested there. There are theories, there are experiments with various methods. And what if the social media public square is a way of not spreading disinformation, but questioning to what degree. Examples that people give all the time are, why did they tell us early on not to wear masks? Then they say that masks work. Obviously, by governments changing track on that, large swathes of the public will in fact be inclined not to believe the government in the future because they will come back with, oh, but they told us masks were bad. You know, I'm all in favor of freedom of speech and free debate, and, and I want more of it, not less. So I don't think that, you know, that clamping down on social media is the solution. I think that the, the solution, if there is going to be one, has to be something more difficult. It has to be educating people to, to be more thoughtful and less gullible. And... Um, possibly somehow getting the social media companies to do something that's against their economic interest, namely to retool their algorithms to, I mean, right now their algorithms are tuned to, um, you know, to get the maximum, to get the maximum attention to their advertisements and maximum attention seems to mean um, maximum outrage, maximum emotion, uh, and uh, if maybe there, there has to be some way to change the incentives for them. I don't know what, but I would like to see people to be, to be more reflective, more thoughtful and, and less gullible. And, you know, 20 years ago, I had no idea that, that it would come to this. I mean, I certainly did not predict that the internet would become primarily a, a place for the, the spread of, of dis disinformation. Um, and it's something that I, I don't have any great solutions to. In fact, the way, the way I concluded 
my article was saying about not so much about the internet, but about the um, negative, negative effects of devaluing the concept of objective truth, where 30 years ago, leftists were using it, or at least some leftists were using it. And now the right wing has figured out they can exploit it too. And I said, you know, now the genie is out of the bottle and I honestly don't know how to put it back in. There's a lot to say, by the way, that big tech has had a hold over free speech. And again, when you try to repress that, as we found out with the Hunter Biden story in the New York Post last fall, that led to great distrust of the media. Now, as someone who came from academia to journalism 11 years ago, I had the scales fall off my eyes very quickly in this field. I was quite shocked to learn. The first thing I learned basically was there are certain papers you can't pitch certain stories to. And on the other side of that story, you could pitch to them, like the issue of gender identity. I cannot pitch that to Slate. I tried it. Their science editor wrote me back with a quite insulting response. And there is no open debate anymore in journals for public consumption outside of academia any more than there is inside academia. I tried that too. The LGBT quarterly. Uh, years ago when I started working on this, I, I still do scholarly writing. I, I wrote a piece, submitted it. Whoa. <laughs> it didn't even go through the review process. I was pretty much no platformed from the email onward. Inversely, I and many others writing about the gender issue, we've become targeted by some very questionable for-profit, quote unquote, in quotes, academic publication that's taking pot shots at feminists because now there's a market for that too. So I begin to look around and I see this vast landscape of quasi-academic, but not quite, publications like SAGE, not SAGE as in the Virus Commission, but SAGE publication, which is doing some really yeah. shoddy publishing. They, they ran a piece which was a reworked blog entry. It's horrible. It wouldn't pass the muster of most academic journals 30 years ago. But here we are taking pot shots at feminists for saying that biological sex exists. And then you've got tension at the head of the Guardian Observer about what transgender politics are doing to those publications in terms of they've written out Suzanne Moore from their essence. Now she's gone on to do greater things through Substack. But to be honest, the left is undoing its own mandate to stay true to class analysis, historical materialism. Even if you're not a Marxist, even if you're a liberal, there has to be some semblance of addressing material reality. But of course, this isn't happening, Alan. So yeah. here we are in 2021. Your work seems to be the holy grail for many people. You have written the preface to the French translation of Helen Pluckrose's and James Lindsay's cynical theories, wherein you discuss CSJ, critical social justice, and this is what you write. The history of the ideas leading to CSJ is long, but for brevity, our authors start in Paris in, of the 1960s with the writings of Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, and Jean-Francois Lyotard, what they call classic postmodernism. From these writings, they extract two philosophical principles, the postmodern knowledge principle, which 
displays a radical skepticism towards the possibility of objective knowledge or even objective truth, along with a cultural constructivism and the postmodern political principle, which asserts that society is structured by systems of power and hierarchy that unconsciously organize everyone's way of thinking so as to reproduce this same system of domination. So this is my question for you. Having read what you sent me, is it always going to be an either or scenario in the sense? Because I'm coming from anthropology where in fact we came to understand that for what Levi-Strauss gave us with post-structural analysis of culture and society, that in fact, that was a pushback to the ages of colonial writing about the other, the other who becomes this sacred space today, but who 150 years ago was the noble savage and 100 years ago was the primitive. So there's been a pushback within sociology, anthropology, for instance, and then within the humanities, that if you recall around 1992 at NYU, there were all these symposia all over the campus of re-examining Columbus's history, his legacy. Because it's not just about a man sailing with ships over and discovering the Americas, the emphasis shifted to the conquest of Americas. Hence, Svetan Todorov's book became taught everywhere. I taught it. And is there a way that we might understand that objective scientific knowledge does exist, but also psychologically, historically, counterposed events that weigh heavily the way that slave ships were laden with black bodies and brought over. These, these individuals were not immigrants in the sense of many of our grandparents. These, there's a history that was overwritten by a lot of the more colonial style historical trends. And I'm thinking back to Edward Said's addressing of Huntington in Orientalism. So might it be that this Sturm und Drang, as it were, this pushing and pulling of objectivity versus subjectivity might be offered through both? It's not that science is invalid. Science has its purpose and it's very important but also subjective stories are important. Well, yeah, I mean, of, of course. I mean, first of all, I should say, look, I'm not an anthropologist or a historian, so, so I don't claim to have professional knowledge of those fields. But, I mean, in history, as in any other field, there are, um, there are bare facts, and then there are, there are also interpretations, and they're both, they both matter. I mean, it's a fact. I mean, historians have tried to work out by looking at uh, um, the records of ships, how many Africans were taken in slavery to the Americas? And the answer seems to be somewhere around 11 million, um, you know, plus or minus a million or so. And that's a fact. And it's a very important fact and a very, very sad fact that over the course of almost 500 years, 11 million people, well, that's, I think that's the number that were taken. It's not the number that arrived because of course about half of them died during the crossing of the Atlantic. I mean, so whatever it is, it's, you know, uh, obviously a very horrible history. And similarly with the, the history of the European conquest of the Americas, um, 
uh, I'm not, you probably know the numbers better than me, but I think it was something like 100 million uh, Native Americans died during the first century after uh, the European invasion, mostly from disease and not directly murdered by Europeans, but from disease uh, that they got from the Europeans. Um, but anyway, you know, so, I mean, of course, I mean, of course it's true that uh, Columbus was first, first and foremost a conqueror, uh, not just a discoverer. I mean, you know, so that, I mean, you don't need post-structuralism to figure that out. That's, right, right, right. That, that's just straightforward history looked at. I mean, for, for, well, here, I mean, even simpler. You don't need uh, post-structuralism to tell you that Columbus didn't discover America because the Native Americans were already there, right? They had already discovered America. I mean, so just simple logic shows you that all it means is Columbus was, except for possibly the Vikings, the first European to set foot in the Americas. And that's a different story. Um, so, you know, so already, so just the idea that history should be interpreted um, through the eyes of everybody and not just through the eyes of one side. I mean, you know, that's a, you don't need post-structuralism to tell you that. True, but it was used to set forth the idea that what we've been handed thus far is wrong because the texts, to quote Sweeney Todd, the history of the world, my sweet, is who gets eaten and who gets to eat. So we were sort of being told right around the 80s that all this legacy heretofore was slanted. It wasn't quite accurate that no pilgrims didn't come over and sit down with Indians and eat Thanksgiving. And of course, I agree with you. We don't need post-structuralism to set the record straight. But somehow the idea that not just post-structural theory, but that the dismemberment of everything before had to happen for us to get to this idea of a critical socially aware space. That was part of it. This is, I guess I'm getting to one of my issues with the Pluckrose and Lindsay book. While I think it makes some very good observations, I'm not completely convinced that theory was the primary driver of what's happened recently. I think it has a role. I think it also has a role, the misinterpretations of a lot of theories, for instance, I've, my doctoral thesis was on Judith Butler in part, and her gender trouble never told people to go out and change their sex. It doesn't even discuss that. It's completely about performativity of gender in the age where gay men were no longer dying from AIDS, that the main menu on the social justice plate at the time was same-sex marriage. And we had lived through the red ribbon phase, the, the quilt in DC that traveled around the country, thousands of gay men died, but then all of that shifted in 1996 with drugs that made AIDS bearable and treatable as if diabetes. So from that point onward, we saw that identity politics became instead of let go of, and people were able to say, oh, now we can integrate and maybe we don't need all of these things that we had to have before to hide ourselves. What happened instead was a, another digging in by my own community where people said, well, let's have 
more nights to celebrate our gayness. Fair enough. People can celebrate. People can identify. What jumped the shark was, I recall, I was in Europe. I came back to New York around 1988, 89, and I found the tea added. And I remember being in a gay bar in the West Village asking friends, what's the tea? They told me, and I said, what does that have to do with us? I don't understand what a gender identity is, first of all, because it's everything that we've had to fight against in a sense, because it's a cousin to all sorts of homophobia. And what does that as a psychiatric condition have to do with us? And of course, I got the same old, well, remember how we were once a psychiatric condition, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, to be fair, that has nothing to do with this because we were never on the streets demanding to be viewed as heterosexuals. We were never on the streets demanding anything other than this is who we are, accept us. Let us have jobs. Let us have housing contracts. Let us get loans. Let us do all the things you can do and don't kill us, please. This lobby, however, was something quite different. And here we are then. Well, Pluckrose and Lindsay were able to look at a lot of the background to this. But I have to say that as someone who has read and taught Foucault, I don't think Foucault particularly would be behind any of this. I don't, Alan. And I tell you why, because he's, his whole opus was about getting at the institutions that were trying to rubber stamp people in the first place. Right, so maybe, maybe we should um, summarize for the listeners the, the Pluck, Rose, and Lindsay book. So the book is called Cynical Theories. And so, so the point is to try to understand where is the ideology of today's so-called social, critical social justice or social justice warriors coming from? Why is it that you see so much intolerance of opposing views and even trying to, to, to shut down and deplatform opposing views um, coming from this corner? What, what is the um, philosophical basis of all of this stuff? And so they trace it to postmodernism, uh, but in stages. So they distinguish three stages, the so-called classic postmodernism of uh, Foucault and Derrida in the 1960s. Um, and then when it crossed the Atlantic and the English Channel into the English speaking world and became fashionable in some uh, left-wing circles in uh, the humanities and social sciences, uh, it became what they called the various fields of applied, what they call applied postmodernism. So you have post-colonial theory, critical race theory, postmodern feminism, queer theory, um, and, and various other things, which they review in uh, successive chapters. And then they say that sometime uh, around 2010, this began to congeal into what um, they call reified postmodernism, where now the postmodern principles, this postmodern knowledge principle and postmodern postmodern political principle, um, heretofore, I mean, which uh, previously had a kind of relativist sense, but now these principles are elevated to um, 
to fundamental truths that cannot possibly be questioned. And so you have this bizarre uh, 180 degree turn where uh, from uh, what seemed to be a radical relativism to now and uh, a dogmatic absolutism, at least about certain facts. Um, and so in fact, what you see in reified postmodernism is people quote um, social constructivist theses selectively to um, discredit the ideas that they dislike without having to um, actually address the evidence and arguments that have been made in favor of those ideas. They just immediately discredit them um, by saying, oh, that's, that's just a social construction. That's just people with power trying to maintain their position. And then on the other hand, um, uh, their analysis of oppression is elevated to the status of an unquestionable truth. And anybody uh, questioning it would again be criticized as just trying to develop, uh, to just trying to, uh, um, to maintain their own power um, without having their evidence or arguments uh, addressed. Um, and so, so they try, so Black Rose and Lindsay try to trace this evolution from classic postmodernism through applied postmodernism to reified postmodernism. And I agree with you that um, their sociological analysis is not completely convincing. I mean, it's not, it's not the whole story. Um, various, ver a lot of different things were going on and you don't just figure out what was going on by tracing the evolution of ideas. Um, there were um, social things pressing in certain directions and maybe as some reviewers that actually I quoted in, in my, my preface, um, some reviewers pointed out that um, uh, some of these ideas have, may have been seized on not because they were um, logical, the logical things to do, um, but simply because they were um, useful tools, useful excuses, if you want, for the positions that people wanted to support politically for other reasons. Um, and then one reviewer was pointing out that um, as, uh, um, as these trends were, were uh, taking place in academia, um, there were also things uh, going on in the, the real world outside of academia, namely that um, the working class and the, the, the rights of the working class and organized labor were being battered by right-wing politicians. I mean, Margaret Thatcher first and then, um, and then Ronald Reagan and subsequently. And she says, let me see if I can find what she says because it's rather eloquent. Uh, she, she says, um, political blows to the working class throughout the 70s and 80s left leading activists to seek power, not in mass movements, but through instigating change from within state institutions, workplaces, and supranational organizations. Rather than standing on picket lines, there were human resources policies to be written. Um, and then she says that, I think this is a really important point. She says, disillusioned political activists 
found it far easier to persuade middle-class students and university lecturers of their cause, and in turn to take on board the outlook and concerns of this intellectual elite. It was far easier to play at identity politics than engage in class politics. Many activists are far more comfortable arguing that womanhood is a social construct than they are in talking to actual women who work as cleaners or carers. Academia, academia and critical theory in particular allowed political retreat to be presented as progress and defeat as victory. Um, and so, so I think that the, the Pluck, Rose and Lindsay book um, is very incomplete. I mean, for, oh, I should say people have criticized their analysis of particular writers and have said that maybe their analysis is inaccurate. Um, and I think that just has to be argued on a case by case basis. I'm not um, an expert on most of those writers. Um, I did look at some of them, some of their critiques of um, uh, um, uh, um, fe feminist slash uh, um, anti-racism uh, active, uh, um, well, uh, academic activists and I did read the articles, the original articles, and it seemed to me that Pluckrose and Lindsay were correct, but could have argued their case better with more detailed quotes from these articles. Um, but there may be other cases where they got it wrong. And I think, you know, you may well be right, by the way, that the critical social justice um, people are not um, properly using Foucault and misinterpreted version of Foucault. That that may well be true. Well, I also think it bears to say that Judith Butler, if you recall, won a very bad writing book award way back when her <laughs> yes. first book was penned. And yeah. I've taught that book. I've taught queer theory, Alan. And when I told my graduate students who could not access the entire book to just read one chapter or two, I would assign because that book is very difficult to read. That said, I have read the book. There is uh, absolutely no mandate for people to change their body in any way. The book was really an answer to decades and decades, centuries, one could argue, of repression of, of gay and lesbian lives through this notion of locating a performativity of gender, because the performativity of gender was, as many of us know, gay or straight, that when one was coming out of the closet or found out to be gay by their family, the answers were often, oh, you're really just a girl inside. And there are many men who went through shock therapy. I have friends who've been subjected to this because they were made to believe that they were born in the wrong body. Skip to the present day and the last decade has been rife, go to Twitter. People are actually sharing articles, Alan, of how open Pakistan is because they've elected another transgender MP or Iran, how Iran is more open to trans people without having any historical basis as to why this might be the case. And I have my own family who is in what was once part of the Hindustani conglomerate before the separation and very next to Pakistan. My family is Gujarati and you know, the way women are treated in India and Pakistan depends on class. And if you are not of an upper class, you are not a Patel, you are not of a certain caste, 
your life as a female will definitely not be as good as being an MP who speaks Urdu living in Pakistan. The same thing for the way that Iran has historically treated homosexuals was to give one of the two of the couples the choice to transition. These are not historical facts to celebrate. And right. what I find interesting, and I, I don't know how much time you spend on crazy social media, but... Zero. <laughs> Zero. I'm not on Facebook, Twitter. You get the sanity of the Millennia Award, Alan, because this is rife with, on both sides of the debate as well, I have to say, because now arguing the other side is becoming its own NGO industry, if you follow me. I think we need to start dealing with facts such as, well, there's a great scholar who's also there near you, Heather Brunskill Evans. She also has written for us. She's talked about the invention of the transgender child. And this, the fact that we need to even be discussing the fact that children shouldn't be ingrained with some kind of fiction from birth or within education that they are transgender, that their sex was assigned to them at birth. All of these fictions have now form part of a larger ideological strategy, oftentimes within the school system. It's happening in the UK, it's happening in the US. You have two teachers on the west coast of the US who were put on leave because they pushed back. One was a principal of a school and then the teacher working at the same school. So women are being punished quite sadistically for saying female is a sex, women are adult human females anything like that, it will get you fired. It will get you even kicked out of your flat. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously, you know a lot more about this issue than I do. But yeah, some, somehow it's amazing that the trans, I mean, trans rights means a bunch of different things. I mean, it, if it means that, you know, everybody should be allowed to live, live their, their lives in, in, in dignity without being hassled, and without being discriminated against, you know, I'm in favor of it, everybody's in favor of it. Um, but if it means that other people are going to be obliged to treat you as if you are a member of the sex that you claim to be a member of, even if you're not, um, that's a different story. And um, somehow, until recently, somehow trans rights managed to pose as the first completely unobjectionable thing managed to um, present itself as, you know, the next stage for people who supported gay rights. This is the, the next stage in, in the struggle for human rights. And um, maybe people are now only waking up to the fact that, that gender self-identification is a quite different ideology. It's not about people's individual rights. It's about imposing on everyone else that they have to behave towards you in a certain way and have to allow you into single sex spaces that maybe you don't belong. Um, but I, I was also very struck when I was reading Helen Joyce's recent book, Trance, um, by when she talks, she, she, she cites curricular materials from, I guess, elementary, for elementary schools, you know, for eight-year-olds in Australia, Canada, uh, at least, where they would say, you know, in order to, you know, situate your gender identity, consider a continuum 
between uh, G.I. Joe at one end and Barbie at the other, and then situate yourself somewhere in between. And I mean, I was just totally shocked. I mean, didn't we figure out 50 years ago? I mean, wasn't, didn't 1970s feminists figure out that, you know, like G.I. Joe and Barbie are both a lot of bullshit? I don't want to sit my, uh, to uh, situate myself on a continuum between them. I want to, you know, be a human being. And I don't like either G.I. Joe or Barbie. And, you know, and similarly, you know, um, if you have, what, what do you call a, a girl, a, a, I don't know, a four-year-old girl who prefers uh, pants to dresses and who prefers uh, sports to dolls? I call her a girl who prefers pants to dresses and sports to dolls. This is what I don't think a lot of the trans lobby, and that means both trans people and their supporters, and by the way, not all trans people. This is a very militant group I'm speaking about, but they do not understand why we could be offended. Because as you said, we just want to be human. I don't run around. I'm not talking to you any differently, Alan, because you are male. In fact, I would hope that our ethos in life as we grow and, and really grow together even as humans is to understand that fundamentally, aside from our reproductive organs, there's very little that separates us. I mean, you could, you could like or hate chess just as I could like or hate chess. You could like or hate hiking. This has very little to do with our genitalia. And I'm constantly alarmed by how we were sold trans over the past 20 years, because that's when it's really popped on the scene at the end of the 90s, as we're breaking the gender binary. That's what they would say 10 years ago. That shifted slightly but there's no binary being broken. It's a entrenchment of stereotypes. Exactly, I mean, feminists broke this binary 50 years ago, right? I mean, you can be a yeah. woman and like dresses or like sports. I mean, you can, you can be a woman and like what you want. You can be a man and like what you want. Um, and, and yeah, the, the you know what you said about the differences between um, men and women reminds me of, 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 of a brilliant thing that was written, oh, many, many years ago by Katha Pollitt, the, uh, one of the columnists for, for The Nation, a left-wing magazine in, in the United States. And she was, you know, reviewing, the, there was this famous book, uh, what was it? Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. It was like a best-selling book about, you know, uh, the, the alleged huge differences between men and women. And she said, no, it's more like men are from Illinois and women are from, women are, women are from Indiana. <laughs> you know, different, but not so different. This is what I think the lobby is missing because it's a gender lobby. It's not just a trans lobby, it's a lobby of, because they're joined by a lot of men's rights activists. And there's a lot of misogyny thick within the rhetoric such that just the other day, J.K. Rowling, yeah. she's at it with these activists who are now threatening her with a pipe bomb. And her retorts to the violent are, pure, are patently brilliant. But this is what I don't understand why the people backing this, and these are many academics of the quote-unquote left. I put quote-unquote left, Alan, because I have to question anyone who's behind something that denies historical reality and material reality. And then you've got politicians pushing on this, including in, in the UK, the Labour Party was torn asunder over this. This is a large part of the reason why Corbynism failed. He 
focused on pronouns, not housing. And, and then you have the same in the US. This is happening now where Biden has basically signed out women's rights for Title IX protections. Or now you have sports women who are being pushed out of competing in this year's Tokyo Olympics because a weightlifter who's a man is calling himself a woman. In the postmodern condition, Jean-Francois Lyotard talks about language games. That's his term. And we're seeing language games being used against women. So when you say, didn't women do that 50 years ago? Yes. But what is it that men are now saying, but we'll do it better? Men are telling us how to do feminism. Men are telling us that we're not women. We're cervix havers. We're uterus havers. We're front holers. I swear to God, that's one of them. We've been called everything under the sun. Yeah, it's also interesting. I mean, in principle, this gender self-ID goes in both directions. But somehow the mantra is trans women are women. And there's not so much stress that trans men are men. Ironically, they know what sex is and they know very well that the lobby they're pumping up is a very male-dominated lobby. What struck me about the, um, when, when I was reading Helen Joyce's book is how, how strongly the, um, I mean, the, so the, the idea seems to be that you have somehow in, inside you some ineffable gender, some ineffable true gender, something like a true soul um, that is totally independent from your actual biological sex. And, but the, what is the definition of this ineffable gender, it seems to be defined solely by old fashioned stereotypes, which I mean, I just find it bizarre that 50 years later, these stereotypes are being resurrected. But, you know, maybe things have been happening in these 50 years that I've been oblivious to. I mean, I, you know, when I was growing up, when I was an undergraduate, that was at the height of, of the, feminism, and all of us, men and women, were affected by it and took it to heart. And, you know, maybe it's, it's several generations later, and maybe, maybe things have changed in ways that I didn't realize. Um, and, and the same, by the way, just to put it in this broader context of the critical social justice in general, is it? that large parts of the left have become so opposed to freedom of expression. I mean, the, you know, the Mario Savio and the, the people of the Berkeley free speech movement of 1964 uh, would be turning over in their graves. It, you know, at that point, the left was defending free speech because they knew perfectly well that when free speech is curtailed, it's the, um, the, it's the left and the oppressed who, uh, who feel the brunt of it. And now um, it's, it's uh, well, there are attacks on free speech from both sides, but um, it seems to be coming more strongly from the so-called left. And that, that, that worries me. Um, why are people, so offended by an idea that's different from theirs that they have to shut it down, that they can't listen calmly to it 
and uh, refute it. Um, and it can only make me conjecture that the reason they do it is because they know in their hearts that they don't know how to refute it. Not necessarily that it can't be refuted, but just they don't know how to refute it because they haven't thought carefully enough about it to know how to refute it. They've only accepted what they believe is dogma and haven't actually confronted it with, um, with opposing ideas. And, you know, when I realized all of this is discussed by John Stuart Mill in 1859 in, in his essay on liberty. He discusses that. He discusses how one of the, one of the uh, negative consequences of censorship is that even when people are, are right, they don't know why they're right, that it's a dogma rather than a consequence of reason because they don't know the arguments against their position and they don't know the argument, the stronger arguments in favor of their position. Um, and it's really sad that now it's what, 160 years since John Stuart Mill and we have to, uh, we have to revisit that. What do we do when people actually believe something that if everyone wasn't being gaslighted, we would all know as a hoax. And this is what a feminist wrote me. I'm reading her question because it's very important that we can discuss something where we all know that there's gaslighting going on, yeah, such as the female penis. Really? In what world? I, I was absolutely shocked when I read, I mean, I'm sure you know the case of Maya Forstadter here in England. So she was a, a gender critical feminist who well, didn't lose her job, had her, had her contract as a consultant for a development organization not renewed because some of her coworkers took offense at her gender critical tweets and uh, her defense of the idea that there is such a thing as biological sex. And, uh, and so it went to court and the um, at the first, the, the, the first uh, employment tribunal ruled against her and made an amazing, I mean, just a totally shocking characterization that her views were um, uh, something like uh, uh, repugnant in a democratic society or something, or incompatible with uh, um, a democratic society. And so the idea that there, so, it, so it's a little bit bizarre. I mean, as was pointed out by her lawyers on appeal and they ended up winning the appeal, her lawyers pointed out, you know, until recently, it was taken for granted that there were two sexes, one male and one female. And certainly all of English law uh, was based on that at the very least until the Gender Recognition Act uh, changed that. And so this, traditional point of view, which is presumably the one that's also taken 50% of the population, um, is now considered to be somehow on a par with, uh, with Nazism. Uh, that, because the, though that was the kind of view that according to the European law would um, somehow forfeit its right to freedom of speech. Uh, and so it's, it's very strange that the idea that there is such a thing as a male sex and a female sex is now considered to be uh, abhorrent. Um, 
something that most people just consider to be common sense. Is the left maybe plagued with the problem of we need to understand that maybe less is more in the sense of this is a question I've had with myself in my lockdown thinking moments of maybe we keep trying to push on rights. We like to say on the left, human rights, and goodness knows I work on that issue, but I work on human rights where there's actually human rights in the balance. And I, I have to wonder if the left, especially in the relatively wealthy West, we are abusing the terms human rights. Does a man have a human right to even stress his own identity in a sense, legally? Prisons, hospital wards, what is it about the left that has become so obsessed even, I'd have to say at this point, with the notion of individuality and selfhood, where the left of the 50s, 60s, and 70s was working on far other different strategies, right? Yeah, and, and, and it's, again, part of this broader issue that I brought up um, and that would be another long discussion of another three hours. Um, the the tension between focusing on on economic class and focusing on identity issues such as gender or sex and race. There definitely has been in the 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 left in uh, Western countries a trend against. Uh, dealing with class issues and towards dealing with these identity issues. And I wonder whether part of that, well, part of that is maybe uncertainty about what, um, what would be um, uh, helpful policies uh, that would favor the working class. Um, but I think it's also that the traditional left parties have become to have come to be less and less based in the working class and more and more based in the upper middle class and therefore reflect the the issues that are important to the upper middle class and those identity issues are more important than economic issues to people who are already economically fairly well off i mean i think that that Joanna Williams was absolutely right. He said about the Pluck Rose Lindsay book that the that one thing they they uh, they did point out, but not as much I think as they should. That you know, it, it, uh, her line about uh, people are more comfortable uh, saying that womanhood is a social construction than they are talking to actual women who work as cleaners and carers. And I think that's you know that's a that's a, a really good point. Um, I think we should be thinking more about the actual women who work as cleaners and carers and the actual men who work in working class jobs and get badly paid. Thank you.